Hello, dear listener. Bloody Violent History Season 2 is drawing to a close, this being our valedictory episode for 2022. James Jackson and I have published 29 episodes since our last summary in 2021. I hope you agree the range has been wide and that you have enjoyed our output. Listen to all episodes on our website or via your podcast app. Please send us feedback and requests to talk at bloodyviolenthistory.com. We read and respond to all your messages. My name is Tom Ashton. And fear not, the airways won't collapse into silence on this channel. Jamie will be recording some bloody bites for you to keep you ticking over until the new year. So if you haven't listened to our show yet, or need a gentle reminder of what we like to talk about, here are some snippets from 2022. Episode 58, Battle of Britain 1940 with James Holland. Like last time, what we did is we we selected a number of the episodes that we particularly enjoyed or making or found interesting. So uh, Jamie and I have got uh, three each that we've selected and we're going to have a little chat about them. So the first one is the Battle of Britain, which was an interview uh, I did with James Holland, the writer on the Second World War. There's no doubt that the Battle of Britain was an intense encounter. It clearly wasn't the uh, end of the war any, in any fashion, but these um, discussions about particular battles are battles of culmination, a, a moment in, in time where things dramatically change. And it was a very intense battle between the RAF and the Luftwaffe. Yes, and if you want to talk about the intensity of it, there's so many stories that come through. The one I love is the squadron leader from 10 Group, which were the group really to the west of England. So numbers 10 and 11 operated south of the Thames and north of the Thames, essentially. But behind them, uh, to the west, was, was number 10 group. And there was a squadron leader who was just leading a, a flight of, I think it was about five hurricanes, towards the coast. And they encountered over 100 German bombers. And the famous quote was the squadron leader, as he went into a dive, he just said, OK, chaps, let's surround them. And that sort of sums it up. You know, people talk about the few, and it was the few. It was an extraordinary campaign, an extraordinary battle. And the bravery of those pilots and the stories that came from that are just amazing. Was there anything you could compare it to in, in the past, where there was an encounter with the very few people who made a huge difference against a massed army? Well, I suppose you can talk about things like Thermopylae. You know, we, mm. we did that podcast on Last Stands, and, and this, was, uh, this could have been a Last Stand. And the lessons of history are clear, as Russia is, is finding out today that if you don't have a superiority, if you can't dominate what is going down on the ground, what is happening down on the battlefield, then you are never going to win the campaign. And had the Luftwaffe succeeded in taking out the Royal Air Force bases and taking out the Royal Navy, then there, there might well have been mass landings. But I've been a bit sceptical all, all along, a bit like the attempted invasion or, or intended invasion by the Spanish during the Spanish Armada, 1588, 
that that you know making an invasion actually organizing it and and making it successful is far harder than people think and you you only have to look at how the allies had to practice in north africa sicily italy in order to get it right and, and mount other raids like dieppe for example um, what, and and so, so they could get D-Day right. So they could get D-Day right. Yeah. It, 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 you know, to do it on a whim, not having ever thought about it before, with a commander-in-chief like Adolf Hitler, who had no understanding of amphibious warfare, who was far more interested in the East, it, it was really so unlikely to happen, and even less unlikely to happen had the RAF been undefeated which eventually it was. And, and what's really interesting is that on the 15th of, of September, there's this, these two huge raids. We now commemorate that day as Battle of Britain Day. And the second raid is a, peaks around three o'clock in the afternoon. And there's around 300 enemy aircraft, of which 100 are bombers and 200 are fighter escorts. But reigned against them are 335 Spitfires and Hurricanes. And this is the day that, that Churchill visits Keith Park and the bunker at Uxbridge, the headquarters of 11 Group, and says, where are all the reserves? And Park says, there are none. And what he means is, I have none, but there's another, you know, 400 aircraft around the country. So so it's, it's, it's been completely taken out of context. Yeah. And the bottom line is, of course, is if you're Jeff Wellham in 92 Squadron, you're one of 12 against 300. You look, It looks like the odds are absolutely enormous. But, of course, you're not one of 12. You're one of 335. But as a 19-year-old, you don't know that. Yes. Because it's not your job to see the bigger picture, but but it is the job of a historian to see that bigger picture. And the fact of the matter is, is the Germans just don't have enough to do what they're trying to do. They don't have a big enough force. They've underestimated the strength of the RAF. They don't understand the air defence system. They don't appreciate how radar works. They don't understand anything about the Observer Corps. They don't understand that the RAF is in different commands. Um, they don't understand that the RAF is producing between double and three times the number of aircraft that they are every month. And they just don't have enough to do what they need to do, which is secure air superiority over the invasion front and beyond. And you, know, we 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 mentioned sort of individuals. I mean, there there are two other instances that that come to mind that really summarise it. One is someone like uh, Eric Nicholson, who won the Victoria Cross, who was uh, I think he was a flight lieutenant at the time during the Battle of Britain, and he flew Hurricanes, and. There was an engagement uh, near Southampton and his uh, plane was shot at and hit by Messerschmitt 109s and it was on fire and he was about to bail out. He was wounded. He was about to bail out but then saw a German bomber and decided to climb back into the cockpit, attacked the German bomber, brought it down, at which case time his his cockpit was completely on fire he was on fire he was unconscious bailed out fell out of the plane and uh, as he came down unconscious he was then shot through the buttock by a member of the home guard quite right too uh, do you think it was jones do you welcome think it was Cor- home do you think it was corporal jones or like godfrey a, like a, they like him they, they like it they up don't him. like it up him. <laughs> but but that was eric nicholson vc and 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 the yeah. the, the, the quite other a similar story to uh, to richard hillary the reading we had in our um in, in our podcast 
that indeed you know that that uh, the, the sort of insane bravery and the turning of the moment from when he's shooting down a Messerschmitt and he 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 pauses to take another shot and he knows but even even in that moment that he's doing it that he's made a mistake and then he gets nailed from behind yeah and you take someone like Alan Deere who was a New Zealand pilot and, and I think by the end of the war he had he had uh, brought down 22 enemy aircraft but during the battle of britain he had seven crash landings or bailouts uh, from his spitfire and the last instance, he, he was taking off from Hornchurch with other Spitfires just as the airfield was being bombed. And a bomb landed close. Three Spitfires were blown into the fields around. His Spitfire lost a wing. The engine was blown away by, you know, blown to pieces. The, the plane flipped over. He skidded for hundreds of yards, you know, the plane on its back, and he still survived. I mean, that's what I mean by the intensity of it. It was, it was just extraordinary, the, the level of combat. And you've got pilots, some of whom were taking off five times a day. Yeah. Uh, am I allowed to tell my Douglas Bader story? Have I told that? I don't know. Hit me with it. So Douglas Bader, after the war, of course, he's a great uh, hero. And he went to give a talk. I like to think he went to give a talk at Cheltenham Ladies College um, to the girls uh, about the war. And the headmistress was absolutely, you know, she was clucking around him and fussing around him because she uh, was in awe of him. And Bada, with a twinkle in his eye, is talking to the girls. And he said, well, I was flying my, my Spitfire over the, over the channel and I had uh, a fucker on my left and a fucker on my right and a fucker behind me. And the headmistress goes, oh, oh, girl, girls, uh, the fucker is a German aircraft. And he turns around to me and says, yes, but these fuckers were Messerschmitts. <laughs> <laughs> but actually, there are two, two uh, stories I remember about Bardet during the Battle of Britain. One that he was flying under a Dornier, and suddenly these cables dropped out from the, from the bomb bay. And and were designed with weights on the end. They were designed to take his wings off or get him entangled. I mean, talk about improvisation. That sounds that extraordinary. That's yes. That sounds very hit and miss. You were completely. And 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 there was another story about Bardo when he noticed that the the, the rear gunner on uh, one of the German bombers. I can't remember. There's a Heinkel one eleven. He noticed that the rear gunner had jumped out of the plane and his parachute had got snagged uh, on, on the tail of the plane. And for 15 minutes, this poor gunner was just dragged to his death. I mean, mm. it, and, and Barda tried to take him out and... and what, and, shake him off? No, 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 just kill him to, to make his death quicker. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we've talked about this before, about RF Bomber Command and the 55,000 who died, that mm. people need to understand that these were not easy deaths or quick deaths no. a lot of the time. They were absolutely horrendous and often in burning aircraft. But... You know, Bardo was absolutely in the thick of it, and and of course had this this constant campaign for the big wing, mm. trying to push that on, yes. push that on Number Eleven Group and Park Park, and um, you know there was always that problem. But I think there was room for both, really. The, I, the, the yes. instant reaction and, and you know and when the big wing when Park got to Malta, he used the big wing. Well, exactly. But so, I, I, so, I mean, it was, you know, and, but, but, it, but after the Battle of Britain, when they were patrolling over France and they used the big wings, the, the, the big wing 
uh, tactics, the pilots hated it because, you know, they were just attrited in these large formations. And, and you know, each mission they flew, a few of them were picked off. And, and I think responding to what was happening in the instant and using uh, sort of squadrons as they were available in number 11 group in the south of England was the right way to do it at the time because it, it kept the Germans guessing. They, they couldn't predict how the, how the Brits were going to react, where the Royal Air Force were going to be. You know, had they known that there would be a large formation, a big wing, coming from north of the Thames or wherever, they, they, they would have been able to respond. But having these squadrons going in pell-mell and in a sort of impromptu fashion kept the Germans on guard, kept them wondering what on earth was going to happen next. On the subject of improvisation and cables dropping from German bombers, it's fascinating to see the RAF were also trying things out. And there was a thing called the PAC rocket system, the parachute and cable rocket, nine at a time that were based at airfields. And every time an airfield was bombed, these rockets would go, would go off. And, and quite often they would succeed in taking off a, a German wing uh, and to bring down a German bomber. So uh, you know, everyone was trying every sort of technology, anything that came to hand. It's sort of first cousin to the barrage balloon. Well, exactly. And so things are always moving forward. And before we move on to the next subject, we should also give a very honourable mention to the 2,000 WAFs who were also supporting in the Battle of Britain, quite a few of whom were killed. Yes, and three or four of my great aunts were radar plotters and, and worked for the WAF during the war. So, yeah, and people forget that the intensity of the bombing of the airfields and of the operations centres that went on, and there were a lot of women who were decorated for their bravery, and, and they went on working in these centres, operating the telephones, plotting the, the, the German forces, uh, even as they were being bombed. And it only took five minutes for a fighter, for example, to, to travel across the channel. So quite often you got strafing runs by by German aircraft that were coming over, lone aircraft or in, or in wings. WAF is Women's Auxiliary Air Force. They did a great job. Episode 55, Gladiator. Right, so well, one of my favourite episodes was the one we recorded about the gladiator and whether that's from the classical period, Roman gladiators, all the way through to the modern bare-knuckle fistfight. Um, and all the way back to those classical times, there was an element of mystique attached to these characters who put their life on the line. I think... Even in Homer's Iliad, there is a famous boxer who nobody could defeat, none of the, the usual heroes, I don't know his name, but strangely enough, he was terrified of going into battle, which was an odd, uh, an odd twist in the, in the story. So names on a postcard if you know who he was. But, but you know, fighters always become legends. Uh, there, there's always something about them. I mean, the fact that... Uh, Roman society women took gladiators as lovers. The fact that Commodus is believed to have been the, the, the son of a gladiator. The wedding rituals uh, had 
gladiators involved, that gladiators were used as bodyguards, that bread and games were central to uh, the authority of an emperor. People wanted to be entertained. And people liked to see death. People liked to see combat. It's no different to uh, the public in England or anywhere else turning up to see people being hanged or, in France, people turning up to see others victims getting guillotined so what a a reminder of if you don't toe the line and and stick with things you could come to a bloody end or 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 that people want to see blood as simple Mm. as that Mm. i i I don't think it's it's that difficult to interpret Uh, uh, people want to see excitement people want to see combat people want to see execution and a death at the end and so it's spectacle it's to do with spectacle why is it that people, um, therefore governments, uh, I suppose in what the late 19th century, uh, executions finally became uh, private, weren't they? They were, they were done in prison rather than as a public spectacle. Was it just because there was too much rioting and too much fun to be had? Well, I think it's to do this concept of civilization, and in the same way that dueling died out, I think public executions, people thought actually the law needs to be serious, and uh, you know that demands uh, the, a bit of privacy. It's it's no longer a spectacle. You can't have an unruly mob involved, and so I think things move on. But things um, going back to the gladiators uh, in, in Rome, uh, it. It wasn't at all chaotic. I mean, they were well organised. They had trade unions, they had life insurance, which allowed them to make plans for their families. And it became part of the fabric of Roman society. You go to any Roman settlement around the world and you will find an amphitheatre. You will find a small space in which there could be combat. And quite often the combat was simply bare-knuckle fighting. You know, you got the basic gladiators and they fought with, with, with knuckles. So you didn't need great amounts of training. And at the other end of the spect- spectrum, the great spectacles, the, the sea battles that were put on by people like Julius Caesar, there you simply needed prisoners of war who could die. And you could get hundreds of the casualties in these sort of things. And, and yeah, and, that was all sort of part of a triumph, wasn't it? You know, they would well, have... well, yes, and, and and again, no no special training required. It was only later on when you got the specialist gladiators that 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 you had to have gladiators of equal ability uh, facing each other, because otherwise the fight would be over too quickly. So you never wanted a a death straight off. You wanted to have them evenly matched. And there were many gladiators who, as long as they put up a good fight, would be spared, even if they lost. And I suppose every time a spectacular was put on, um, the next person to come along, the next consul or emperor, uh, would try and improve on that and make it even more spectacular so 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 they were constantly searching for new and crazier ideas which is why they brought in people like the bestiari so you had animal hunts you had uh, the damnati you had people being eaten alive by by wild animals i mean there were all sorts of animals being brought in whether it was hippos or leopard or lion it, it just so much they always say that one of the reasons you, know, you don't get lions in north africa is because the romans took them all yeah 
yeah. And Nero, with his um, thespian background, he quite liked uh, performing and so on. He, he, he brought a new added gloss to the whole thing. Well, yes, he liked playing the harp. And at the same time, he liked having Christians alight as human torches in his gardens. So they, they, they all practised this, whether it was Nero, Caligula, Commodus... Um, you know, some of them liked fighting in the arena and, and making the, 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 the others, the victims, fight with wooden swords. Uh, or you could pick them off with arrows from a platform. I mean, all sorts of things went on. I suppose it comes down to the idea of um, there's something, a, a great trial when you have two, two people, two men normally. Uh, although we did have, uh, in our dueling episode, didn't we, a number of women who who fought each other. But when you have one man fighting another, for instance, Thomas Ashton Smith, who was a great nimrod of the uh, 19th century fox hunting man and member of parliament, he was at a hustings up in the north and being heckled by the local hooligans. And so he just stepped off his soapbox and, challenged, and he said, I'll challenge anyone to a fist fight. And they had a good old brawl. I think he might have lost, actually, but they were so impressed by his attitude that um, he was a successful MP for many years after that. Are you telling me you've just managed to squeeze a family member into the podcast? <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> there we are. The, Nimr the Nimrod's got a bit dull since then. <laughs> yeah. Um, but modern soldiering, professional soldiering, uh, involves uh, a certain amount of gladiatorial expertise. Well, it's no no coincidence that uh, in military units you get milling, you, you get you get uh, punch ups to to because it raises morale, it entertains the troops, and it's it's good for moral fibre. And here is episode fifty nine, artillery. In August, we published an episode on artillery, which is very much um, of the moment because of so much of what we've heard and seen from Ukraine. Edward Thomas, uh, the First World War poet, described artillery, he said it, it's like a stormy tide. Um, and as you would know if you listened to that episode, Edward Thomas was killed at the Battle of Arras in 1917, purely by a shell whistling past him so close that the shockwave from the shell stopped his heart and killed him stone dead. Edward Thomas spent the day before he died under particularly heavy bombardment. The shell that fell two yards from where he stood should have killed him, but instead it was a rare dud. Back at Billet, the men teased him on his lucky escape. Someone remarked that a fellow with Thomas's luck should be safe wherever he went. The next morning was the first of the Arras offensive. Easter Monday dawned cold and wintry. The infantry in the trenches fixed their bayonets and tightened their grip around their rifles. Behind them, the artillery made their final preparation to the loading and the fusing of the shells. Thomas had started late to the observation post. He had not rung through his arrival when the bombardment began. The Allied assault was so immense that some Germans were captured half-dressed. Others didn't have time to put on their boots and fled barefoot through the mud and the snow. British troops sang and danced in what only a few hours before had been no man's land. Edward Thomas left the dugout behind his post and leaned into the opening to take a moment to fill his pipe. A shell passed so close to him that the blast of air stopped his heart. He fell without a mark on his body. 
Ukraine has seen a lot of artillery and people have talked about it a lot, Jamie. They have. And when you think of how people were talking about the Russians moving towards this creeping barrage, this artillery offensive, and saying, oh, they're going to grind the Ukrainians down, I think there are two things you take from that. First of all, it certainly turned into an artillery war, but you also have to understand that on its own, artillery isn't enough. And you can end up, if you rely on it, very vulnerable. So first of all, you're vulnerable to counter battery fire, which the Ukrainians have inflicted on the Russians and taken out hundreds of artillery pieces. They're also vulnerable to their railheads being taken out, on which they rely for the shells being taken forward to those depots. So Russia has suffered hugely. And as a result, their supposed advantage in artillery has waned to the extent that the Ukrainians are now on the offensive and the Russians are the ones on the defensive, right across the front, from the north all the way down to Kherson. So you know, artillery, as we've said, is is, is not enough, but it, it's, it's made a, a huge impact on the war so far. Does that mean that non-tracked artillery, you know, something you hitch up to the back of a wagon, really, you, you, you can barely use it because you're going to get uh, caught in 30 seconds and counterfire will come back in your direction. You certainly have to move after about two or three shells have been fired. It doesn't give you a lot of time. Right, so you can't sit there all morning blasting away. No, and it makes it much harder for the artillery, if it's towed, to keep up with the other tracked vehicles that you're using. If you have tracked artillery, they can move at the same speed as the other combined arms forces. So they they can keep up, they can fire and manoeuvre, which makes them safer in, in, in a way. The Russians are reduced now to getting their D1 howitzers out of stock. I mean, these were howitzers that were being used in 1943. I don't think they made ammunition for them after about the 1950s. So the Russians are actually deploying not only howitzers that are 60, 70 year old, years old, but they're, they're supplying them with shells that are probably going to explode as they're fired. So they really have lost their advantage. And this, this much vaunted artillery army of the Russians is much depleted. And artillery, we, we looked in the episode uh, back at the history of artillery and it emerged around the time the longbow and so on, other instruments of war were being used and, and gradually powder um, started to replace them. But it wasn't, it wasn't really integrated with armies very quickly because it couldn't keep up. Well, it was always a siege weapon to begin with. If you go back to Philip of Macedonia, his son Alexander the Great, you go back to the Chinese, all these armies were using artillery, but, but it, it tended to be used against structures, against towns and cities. Alexander the Great did start to use it on the battlefield, and the Romans used it on the battlefield. Uh, they had devices such as a Scorpio, which was uh, a torsion 
uh, catapult that could fire arrows that were sort of three feet long at the enemy, and they were very useful. But it was really bringing down cities. And there are mentions in the Bible, uh, there are mentions of uh, the Romans in Britain using them to cow the tribes of Britain. So you got all this use, and, and not just boulders and cannonballs and things like that. You also had the early beginnings of chemical warfare, the use of sulfur pots, the use of naphtha. And even in the 14th century, you had the Mongols firing uh, plague victims, black death victims, over the ramparts into Kaffa in the Crimea, of all places. So here we, here we see Crimea yet again appearing in history. But, but this use of artillery as a delivery system for all kinds of armaments goes back a long way. In the ancient past, artillery was, as Jamie said, uh, with rocks and stones and torsion methods. And then powder, black powder, gunpowder comes along and cannon is developed for siege and then movable cannon uh, is available. But it's tricky to use. Um, Even at the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon was a great artillery man because you've got cannon which, when fired, has to be uh, loaded from the muzzle end... It hasn't got any recoil mechanisms, so every time you fire it, it comes sliding back and you have to reposition it. And also your men are vulnerable because you're quite close to the infantry on the other side, so they don't get a lot of protection. And then these things in the 19th and 20th century are gradually uh, developed, whereby there is um, systems that allow the gun to fire without the recoil pushing the gun back. There are There's armour protection, so they're... They're protected from small arms fire and also they're mobile enough to be hooked up to a wagon so that in the, in the line of battle they can actually be at the front when an army's on the move and settle in and get started so that, as Napoleon liked to do, soften up the opposition with artillery before sending in his infantry and cavalry to mop up. But you can see why it took so long for artillery to to embed itself in militaries, partly because militaries are quite conservative organisations, but partly on a practical level. If you talk about the the arrival of of cannon and gunpowder and shot, of course those, those bits of equipment are going to be pretty unwieldy. And you're talking about the Battle of Cressy in the 14th century. Why use cannon, short-range, inaccurate, when you've got 20,000 arrows in the air in a minute, which can take out the enemy? So, of course, it was going to take time. And, of course, there was a great reliance later on on the musket and the, the, the sort of discipline of the English squares, the English line. And, and so there was a bit of wariness of, of, of absorbing new technology into the militaries of the day. And also the artillery in those days was sort of contracted out, wasn't it? It was the guns would be owned by an individual who would contract out his guns and and the men to operate them to whichever prince was uh, fighting. And uh, they would take a fee for it. And then if the prince was sensible, he would surround his 
his um, men in the artillery positions with his own men so they didn't run away at the key yeah, moments. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's this slow professionalisation yeah. that, that got things in. And, and you mentioned all the changes in technology. I mean, breech loading as well led to an increase in the rate of fire. But uh, as we mentioned in the artillery podcast, like the machine gun, it, it takes time to understand how you're going to use it, how you're going to apply it. And it took foresight and it took artillery officers like Napoleon to, to understand how useful they could be. And we probably don't have any concept of the danger of a shell falling at your feet, say at the siege of Paris, as compared to the mo- a modern shell, the, the destructive power. Yes, I mean, the black powder shot, uh, you know, shells that were falling on Paris in 1870, uh, they, they simply became a tourist attraction at the time. I mean, they did damage to buildings, but they killed very few people. Well, just to round off on artillery um, and what's happening today, the accuracy, precision and lethality of these weapons is improving, isn't it? Yes, it's, it's improved immeasurably, uh, certainly over what it was you know, a few decades ago, partly because of the self-propelled houses that are now reaching the Ukrainians, partly because of the accuracy, partly because of the rate of fire. If you look at the uh, German self-propelled houses that can loose off 10 rounds a minute, it's a massive rate of fire. And if you've got a battery, you can see how many shells can land on the enemy, in an enemy position at any one time. And then you have guided shells, shells with GPS, such as Excalibur. So it just takes one shell, and you can take out a command centre. And you can land it on a dinner plate 50 miles away. You, you can. I mean, yeah. not, not, with, not with the howitzer. You can do that with HIMARS. Yeah. But, but, but certainly the accuracy at closer range is, is phenomenal. So things have definitely changed and, you know, it now helps the Ukrainians with their offensive. Well, all this equipment, which has obviously been trialled in training and so on, but with, with a war like this going on, that you know, they're learning so much faster, aren't they, about how these things work and, and how they combine with the use of drones and satellites and... Yes, the integration with with spotting and and target acquisition and pinpointing uh, where the enemy are moving. Uh, There's no chance for the enemy to actually manoeuvre undercover. You're going to be picked up night or day. I mean, if you you have things like the Boeing Scan Eagle drone with 20 hours in endurance... You are going to be picked up if you're if you're moving around with an armored column, if you're trying to hide in shelter, and I mean there's so much footage of drones picking out Russian tanks hiding in vegetation or hiding between houses. There's nowhere to run, nowhere to hide anymore. And remember, folks, if you're talking on a military radio to somebody, it's important, uh, if you don't hear what they're saying, to use the words say again rather than repeat. Because if you send uh, the instruction repeat, you just get a second lot of shells landing on your head. Yeah, it's not just a term referring to indigestion. Here's a three-parter on Bloody Russia, episodes 47, 53 and 62. Right, onwards. The, um, apart from your 
brief mention of the Ukraine offensive in our Top Trumps episode, which was on the 8th of March, uh, we've made three episodes on Bloody Russia, which is related, obviously, to the conflict in Ukraine. The first one uh, was titled Hubris, the second one Tipping Point, and the most recent Endgame. We did that for a reason, because I think we've said consistently that Russia had overreached, Putin had certainly overreached, and that the Russian military was essentially like the Wizard of Oz. There, there was a lot of sound and fury, but in terms of capability, in terms of actually winning, they were really at a disadvantage. They'd got it wrong, partly because autocrats overreach. They, they think they can control the battlefield. They think they have some sort of mystic, mystical power uh, to, to actually control events when they don't. So whether it's Putin saying, don't retreat from Kherson, we will not retreat from Kherson, or Hitler saying, don't retreat from Stalingrad, it always ends badly because they have no actual understanding of the military situation or what's going on on, on the ground. And their army gets surrounded and captured. Exactly. And, and they're sort of detached from, from reality. So once that offensive spear is broken and they're on the defensive, they're not geared for that at all. They don't know quite how to deal with it so they come up with all these other alternative plans and these great concepts but but again they they are overtaken very rapidly by events and i think also uh, there are other reasons why the russian invasion has failed there weren't enough of them it was badly conceived poorly executed badly led and they believed that having succeeded in places like syria having done well that somehow the Ukrainians were going to be like a sort of developing state, that they could be dropping barrel bombs on Ukraine as they did over Aleppo in Syria. And it didn't work out like that. So the phases of the conflict from February really were initially the stalled invasion, then the Russians turned their attention to the Donbass and um, started hammering with their artillery and then the, the, the final phase really is the Ukrainian counteroffensive that, that's going on at this moment. And you can see that the Russians, not only are they responsible for the counteroffensive, but, but actually their initial offensive, so much is dated, so much is based on World War II concepts. They didn't have the command and control, they didn't have the ability to command armies across a wide front. They didn't know how to deal with combined arms operations. Their troops weren't up to modern warfare. And the fact that you have the Wagner line being built, that they're, they're building sort of double layers of dragon's teeth of three-foot-high concrete structures, thinking that's going to block a Ukrainian offensive, it's just laughable. It's, it's not going to work. Manned by mercenaries who are going to be fighting against... Ukrainians, men who are fighting for their own country and would do it for no payment at all. And men who have had six or seven months in which to be trained and who are battle-hardened. Yeah. And Russia's battle-hardened troops are dead. So, you know, their training battalions, their, their experienced troops are, are now no longer alive or they're wounded and not going back to the front. 
So you're left with penal battalions and conscripts who are, who are not up to it. And they're facing winter and will not have uh, warm gear to get them through the winter. So you can imagine why morale is so low. And all the time they're being hit by Ukrainian shelling, Ukrainian HIMARS attacks, their weapons depots, their command posts are being taken out. They are essentially on the run. And they're thinking that they can fight some sort of static war and hold the tide, but they won't be able to. They're simply going to be outmaneuvered. Don't you think they'll ultimately just lock themselves up in the Donbass? It will be very difficult for them to do that because they might want to freeze the battlefield, but I don't know how they're going to achieve that. They, they don't have the manpower. They don't have the artillery advantage anymore. And they don't know how to fight a defensive battle. That's not how they're trained. So it, it, it's very difficult to see how they can get around this or how they're going to prevail. Uh, they're simply not going to prevail. And Kherson will fall. So we've seen in this conflict a number of game-changing weapons in use. We have. And you can see this, this change, this evolution, that, that once good defensive weapons have been given to Ukraine, uh, much of it at the last minute, whether it was things like Enlor or Javelin. Well, they needed those right at the start. They needed they? those the right columns. at the start. And also the provision of man pads, man portable air defence systems. So you're talking things like the Stinger and the Starstreak. Once those had been provided, which were very good defensive weapons, once Russia failed to achieve air dominance, air superiority, the die was cast. And so it was a successful defence. I mean, people say that, oh, the Russians are gathering and the Belarusian forces are coming together and there'll be another offensive into the Kiev Oblast. But given they don't have the numbers, they have fewer numbers than they did at the start, and Ukraine now has good defences, it will be destroyed before it even gets to the front line. So I cannot see that succeeding. It's a typical Russian attempt to try and relieve pressure on the Kherson Oblast. Yes, yeah, so do you think, because the Ukrainians were very successful in fainting, you know, they made a big show some months ago about attacking Kherson, and then they took Kharkiv in the north and pushed through that way. Because well, all the Russians pulled their men down to the south. And it feels to me like maybe the Russians are trying to do the same thing by saying they're sending all these men to Belarus, which, the, after all, has the economy uh, the size of, of Montana, apparently. And, and, well, Russia has an economy the size of Texas. So that's, that's two states. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but it's more to do with the lousy intelligence of the Russians, uh, not to be, have been able to pick up what the Ukrainians are doing just shows how, how flawed the Russian intelligence is and how flawed their military is. Ukraine has the advantage of, of Western backing, Western intelligence, Western reconnaissance assets, and they're not going to take their eye off that. They're certainly going to keep a wary eye on, on, on what's happening in Belarus. But even if the Russians make a move forward... They are going to be destroyed. It's it's as simple as that. We had a short episode in December, which you did on drones, one of your bloody bites, and it's extraordinary to see 
the development of the use of drones in this conflict? I, I mean, it's almost down to, well, certainly platoon level, but almost individuals going in and, and, and having a drone in their pack to see what's going on over the hills. It's phenomenal. Not, not just commercial drones and the appearance of quadcopters, the fact that UK is supplying Malloy Aeronautics drones to carry, to ferry supplies forward. You know, I think this will change warfare forever because there are so many roles now in which drones can be used. I mean, you know, the US Navy is trialling drones to do air-to-air refuelling, for example. So it's not just ferrying equipment, it's not just dropping grenades down the turret of a Russian tank. You know, on every aspect of the battlefield, you are getting drones for intelligence, surveillance, target acquisition, reconnaissance, taking supplies forward, uh, kamikaze or, or uh, single destination drones. I mean, at every level, drones are replacing things like helicopters. It's cheaper and you're not going to put you, your manpower, your trained manpower at risk. And lastly, a, a, a mention to HIMARS. That has been a total game changer. And if you look at the reluctance of some in the United States, some in the uh, government uh, and some in the political system to send such weapons to Ukraine and then discovering how good the Ukrainians were at integrating it, operating it, using it. I mean, it's phenomenal what has happened and it has shaped the battlefield. It has created the environment in which the Ukrainians have managed to go on the counteroffensive and Russia is completely on the back foot, completely on the defensive. There is really no place now across the entire front line where Russia is on the offensive. And a lot of that can be put down to HIMARS, taking out those control centres, those command posts, taking out the ammunition depots, taking out the railheads. Wherever Russian forces are concentrated they're going to be hit and, and when we talk about high mast do we also mean the systems sent from the uk which have a slightly different launcher or are high mast it's, it's the same it's the same rocket it's same just a rocket. different like, the the multiple launch rocket system the mlrs has has 12 rockets the the high mast is and it's tracked isn't it the mlrs is and the high mast came a bit later and and there are only six rockets on it is it a better system then it's not so much a better system. In fact, the MLRS is less likely to be bogged down <laughs> because it's tracked. Yeah. Uh, wheeled vehicles. The, the, the HIMARS is based on the standard uh, U.S. Army truck. So, uh, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's easy to use. It's easy to get around. It's easy to service. So the choke point is not probably the production of the vehicles so much that they, the production of the rockets themselves completely completely but but as we know from the second world war once the u.s defense manufacturing base starts moving it starts moving and you know there there are scores more high mars on the way but they'll be coming down the line because they're actually being ordered uh, rather than coming out of u.s army stockpiles They're, they're they're coming straight from the manufacturer so it shows the faith that people have in the system. And I've always said it's, it's the most amazing proxy war for the West and for testing um, Western weapon systems. I mean, the, the, this is 
a war that has put Russia on the defensive, that has denuded Russia of so much of its military equipment without the US losing a single airman, sailor, soldier, without losing a single aircraft. It's phenomenal what has happened. And Russia, it will take a generation to rebuild their military, and they don't have the technology to, to, to build that. They've lost over 25% of their CAR-52 attack helicopters, for example, uh, already. In uh, 1917, the Germans defeated the Russians on the Eastern Front in World War I. And then after that, those soldiers, Russian soldiers, went home. And shortly after that, there was the Russian Revolution. Could we see something similar here with these conscripts going back to Russia with their rusty Kalashnikovs? Well, it's not going back to Russia and rusty Kalashnikovs. It's going back to uh, Russia and a zinc-lined coffin. And there's no doubt that there will be blowback. I mean, you're getting these tensions already in the Russian elite. The, The fact you're getting Russian resistance groups blowing up railway lines between uh, Belarus and Russia speaks volumes. You're, you're getting a new intensity of protest now. So it would be very interesting to see. I think we said in Bloody Russia 3, in the endgame, that there will be blowback, and, and Putin cannot ignore that, and he won't escape it. The fact that he has taken personal control, personal responsibility for not only a flawed mission, but a totally failed one, is something I doubt he's going to be able to escape, and it will catch up with him eventually in in whatever shape or form. Now on to Banditry, episodes 51, 56 and 60. Sometimes we like to group together a number of episodes. One of these was the mini-series on Banditry, which included outlaws, highwaymen and pirates. And this is because uh, war often throws up trained men who, at the end of the war, the end of the conflict, don't necessarily have jobs to go back to, but they have skills. You're absolutely right, Tom. It throws up trained fighters. So whether they become pirates, outlaws, highwaymen or mercenaries, it just means there are roving bands of men who are looking for work and looking for money. Uh, looking for occupation. You also get with war, obviously, the lawlessness that comes with it. So you have the manpower and you have the environment in which these bandits can can function. Yes, so wars creates a sort of chaotic setting. And pirates, for instance, they need a number of things for it, for, for them to be able to function. So they need a base, a sort of secret base. They need a market where they can sell their goods. Um, and it's often not plunder of gold. It's, it's actual, you know, it's uh, furs and, and more saleable things to the everyman. And the third thing is they need this chaotic situation at sea so they can move around and not be taken out by the Royal Navy or anyone uh, else's. Uh, yes, you can apply that to the land as well. And you need sort of 
set trade routes. It's fascinating to see highwaymen, for example, whether it was in the Holy Land back in biblical times. You need needed the Jericho Road where the Good Samaritan story unfolded. You needed the towns, the cities, the trade centers. You look at the thuggies in India, for example. It was always on things such as pilgrimage routes or the silk route the frankincense route all these sort of routes modern day um, shipping going past the somali coast uh, exactly you need to have the sort of the trade routes established you need the cities and the towns it's no accident that highwaymen in, in england gathered around london the approaches to london all those roads all those heaths around london were, were key places in which highwaymen could operate much as criminals and 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 robbers would do the same on the various ways into rome two thousand years before precisely once you get the cattle stations in australia or cattle ranches in america once you get banks being developed in outlying states outlying towns you have traffic between them and long distances and often it's long distances whether it's for pirates outlaws or highwaymen that 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 suit the robber because it means that they're not patrolled that they can't be uh, attacked by government forces they're not policed and they know that that trade gold whatever is going to move in these directions up and down those routes just as elizabethan privateers knew that the spanish gold shipments the galleons were were going to come from the new world on set routes and laid in wait for them and of course they had letters of commission from the queen which gave them uh, a license to carry out this kind of operation and pirates have often been employed as the sort of skirmishers, the forward skirmishers, the forward line. Uh, even the Greek city-states used pirates to attack their enemies, to, to mount patrols, to report back, to give intelligence on, on enemy activity. And quite often it's these mercenary groups, these ad hoc sort of alliances that, that help the, the state because they can't police those areas themselves. Back on land, uh, because we've spoken about it, um, that you need uh, law and order on land and then you can take charge of the seas. So uh, these routes between cities are lawless and then you have turnpikes and tolls established on these to raise funds both to look after the roads but also to raise some sort of police force to make sure that people aren't robbed on them and therefore it all begins to develop that you you, you get a, an authority that's going to look after people on the road yes you get a framework just just as the, the the dominance of the royal navy come the 19th century uh, really doubled down on piracy around the world it's it's no accident the royal navy uh, after the time of the battle of waterloo went and attacked algiers stopped the 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 sort of white piracy stopped the corsairs so or the you, white slavery yes yeah. so so you get this all around the world both at sea and on land yeah. uh, and th- there is a kind of arms race you can see that going on once once for example on the roads of england you got stagecoaches you you got the people on board uh, the the stagecoach 
being armed with uh, pepper box pistols, multi-barrel pistols, or the, the, the stagecoach driver carrying a blunderbuss, it, it became far harder for a single highwayman or even a pair of highwaymen to attack that coach because even if they were wounded, the chance of dying from that wound was very high. It was like, uh, like receiving a small canister charge in your face. Precisely. So yeah. the, 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 it just made it much harder for, for the freelancer to operate. But not all outlaws were total vagabonds. I mean, from American history, John Brown, he was, he was a fanatic. I mean, he wanted to end slavery. Well, some have a political background. Some have a goal or an ideology. But... On the whole, history shows that most really are mercantile. Most have a sort of desire to make money. That's really what drives them. You don't become a pirate out of ideology. You become a pirate because you want money and you want a life of adventure. If you take someone like Jesse James, uh, he came from that background. He came from that bushwhacking background. Uh, and the American Civil War. We talked about war producing these people. Jesse James is, is a f- typical example of that. You know, he, he came from the Confederate side. He wasn't averse to dressing in Ku Klux Klan outfits when he did his robbery. And the reality of it, you know, we talk about legends and the mystique and the, the fact that so many of these people are represented by good-looking Hollywood stars. But it covers up the, the, the sort of grubbiness of highwaymen and outlaws and piracy. It, it was pretty psychopathic, and I think we went into it in our piracy podcast, you know, the, the level of brutality and what could often happen to those who were on ships that were boarded by pirates. Yes, and just to briefly go back to John Brown, I think it's the point is that it's actually, once you've got your act together, easier to defeat a bandit who's looking for the money than a fanatic. Yes, because the fanatic will always come back for another fight until you capture and hang them. Uh, That's the thing. Because their facilities, because the platforms such as ships were so hard to come by, they they tended to escape rather than stay around. Somali pirates wouldn't stay for a firefight. You know, for example, in the modern age, they, they would want to get away as quickly as possible. So hiding out is, was the key. It, it's very rare for pirates to do a sort of Edward Teach who, who had a full galleon at one stage, but that didn't last very long. Uh, most of them used quite small sloops. Right, so it's peace on land and sea through superior firepower. But the legends continue from the past through to today. Well, there'll always be people who want to live outside the system or beyond the law. And it was no accident that we mentioned biker gangs at the end as the postscript for outlaws. They're there for a reason, because in a way they embody the spirit. And again, it's no accident that the FBI considers them a threat because of the drug smuggling, because of the violence. You go to Sweden today and the biker gangs are a serious problem and they're tooled up. I mean, they're armed with everything from grenades to rocket launchers and they've had full-scale firefights with with modern weaponry. And, and so uh, these sort of 
organizations, these sorts of groups, these sort of criminal gangs, uh, again, the reality is often far more grim than the legend and the mystique. IED, the Improvised Explosive Device, episodes 48, 49 and 50. I made a, a mini-series of three episodes on the IED, the Improvised Explosive Device. In it, I interviewed three individuals, Harry Parker, a soldier, Tom Carroll, a surgeon, and Simon Conway, a minefield engineer. They were all very fascinating and moving interviews, in particular the second one, which was with Tom Carroll, the combat surgeon. What you were seeing was... Um, well, you were seeing people, soldiers who you might have you know, seen in the cookhouse the day before. Um, now, certainly coming in, you dressed identically to the way you're dressed. Um, yeah, they got up that morning the same way that you got up that morning. Uh, and the injuries or the extent of the injuries uh, with the IED and just what they do to the uh, to the body is, yeah, it's just, I, I can't even begin to put into words. I think you'd need somebody much better with words than, than I am to, un, to understand that, um, yeah, the horror, I suppose, the, the sort of the, yeah, the horror of, seeing somebody who was and these are young soldiers these are people who are you know, prime specimens of you know fitness and health and whatever and just what that does to the uh, to them and to the body um and you know in the short term and also knowing of course that this is the beginning of it for 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 them for the rest of their life yeah you know, if they're lucky enough to to survive the next you know, next hour or two The IED is it's such an asymmetric weapon and therefore so useful to the terrorist. And when I played it first time to, to Jamie, he had a lot to say about it, but also he has personal uh, thoughts on it as well because his father was a combat surgeon in the Second World War. He was, Tom. Uh, he parachuted into Normandy uh, with the parachute regiment and Tom Carroll's account was in, intensely moving, and it, it, it brought it home to me because my pa was a combat surgeon, as you said, in the Second World War. And it just shows how these normal people who think they're on this career path, this medical path, uh, that they can be ripped away from that and suddenly land in combat. And so my pa had been at Cambridge, read medicine, came to London. Uh, his first job was in the East End in the Royal London Hospital. It was the East London Hospital then. And suddenly found himself in the middle of the Blitz. Uh, one moment he had been sort of delivering babies in the, around the East End you know, with bed bugs and cockroaches everywhere. The next, there were bombs falling everywhere. And he was dealing with hundreds of civilian casualties. Then on top of that, he 
joined the parachute regiment, uh, parachuted into Normandy, dealt with terrible wounds, injuries out there, and then ended up out in the Far East in Changi in Singapore, Changi Jail, relieving that and dealing with the appalling malnutrition and diseases and everything out there. And he, you know, he never quite got over that. I mean, he was so horrified by what he found. So Tom Carroll's account was not only heartfelt, but it was very affecting. And it was an extraordinary thing to hear. And, 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 and so from that combat surgery aspect, but also uh, from the deadly effect of IEDs. And, and that certainly brought it home. And I think that this IED as an asymmetric weapon was very powerfully described uh, by someone like Harry, for example, when he was talking about it. Because it, it does allow the insurgent, the guerrilla, the terrorist, to shape the agenda and the battlefield in a way that they wouldn't be able to do conventionally. You know, they actually tie up a lot of resources. They affect how the conventional forces are going to react and respond and operate in that environment. And they can drive people out of the area. They can deny area to the conventional forces. So I think they were really important interviews, fascinating interviews. And it's not all doom and gloom uh, because there's more learnt in medicine, in war, than in peacetime. The work of people like Tom Carroll in the field goes through and comes back to the National Health Service and other medical services throughout the world. Huge strides in how to deal with bleeding, how to deal with injury uh, that would never get tested in normal peacetime situations because they would just never see these kind of terrible injuries. Simon Conway, who was the third interview, the minefield engineer, works for Halo and others for many years, as well as writing novels. I felt his talk was very uplifting because the extraordinary thing is that landmines have mainly been cleared from the world. Not That's not IEDs, but mines that come in plastic containers. And those things hang around and survive for a long time, decades, if they're not dealt with. And a lot of minefields have been cleared. IEDs are all always around, but they don't last very long because they tend to be assembled in a garage somewhere with a battery and so on, and the battery runs out and the other parts rust and corrode. So it was ultimately a, a remarkable and uplifting story. Yes, and there's no doubt that trauma medicine and prosthetics, for example, have been revolutionised by combat, by these sorts of experiences. But it, it also can't be denied that there's a, a, a strong political aspect to IEDs, that it, it's not just the battlefield uh, or urban environment that is affected by them. It's also the politics back home. You know, what happens back home? You know, having people arriving back home who are injured. You know, th- that too is a big aspect of IEDs, whether it's bombs planted by terrorists or bombs planted by insurgents. It, 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 it has a massive effect way beyond the, the actual blast radius of the device. And both of us take our hats off to these unsung heroes, Harry Parker, Simon Conway and Tom Carroll. Well, and you know how moved I was, Tom. I was absolutely floored by those interviews. They, they, they were very humbling indeed. 
Excellent, Jamie. Well, that was series two, season two. And next year, starting in January, we start series three. We've got all sorts of things lined up, uh, some of which we've recorded already and others which we'll be recording between now and the end of the year and into next year. The theme on battles is something I'm going to continue with. So uh, we've already had the Battle of Britain, but there are others. Gettysburg, the Battle of Kursk, the great tank battle um, in the Second World War. Lepanto, which is a follow-on from the Siege of Malta, which uh, Jamie's a great expert on. Uh, Hastings, we've got Alan Mallinson, the, the historical thriller writer on the normally on the Peninsula War, but um, he's written a book which includes the Battle of Hastings. Canai and Zama, the great uh, high point of Hannibal's existence, um, of Hannibal's life, uh, fighting in Italy, and then, of course, his... Um, his downfall at Zama, at the hands of Scipio Africanus, Trafalgar and Waterloo and some others. We've also got some thematic podcasts for you. Jamie is going to tell you about those. Am I? I can't even remember what they are, Tom. Despots. <laughs> oh, yeah, we've got despots. We've got disastrous expeditions. Guerrillas. Guerrillas and partisans. Yeah, you name it. It's going to be there. And there'll be a few also of our 100 Bloody Objects. And we've got, uh, we've got some interviews as well. We've got Tim Spicer, and we have uh, some stories that we're going to produce as well, particularly one about Crete and the capture of a German general. And I'm going to be doing a few bloody bites, I think. You are, Jamie. Nose to the grindstone. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you what they are because I haven't thought of them yet. Yeah, I know. They just come to you in the night. <laughs> anyway, it's been great. It's been a great uh, year. We've enjoyed very much doing it, and I hope you've enjoyed it. Yeah. Oh, are you talking to me, Tom? I thought you were talking to I'm the talking, listeners. I'm talking to our audience and to you. <laughs> I you, have you're just drifting I, off yeah, there. Yeah, yeah. I have enjoyed it, Tom. Good. I'm glad. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> I promise. Thank you, Jamie. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. So it goes. Well, there you have it. Another season under our belt please remember to pass on to a friend the link to our website, bloodyviolenthistory.com, and a review and some stars help to push us up the charts. Thank you and good luck. <laughs> <laughs>